Um, when I teach preaching at the seminary, uh, I, I always tell the guys, you're not trying to hit a grand slam every sermon. If you do that, you're going to fail. No one can do that. You're trying to get up and be faithful and hopefully hit a double. And if you can do that over a lifetime, that's better than a grand slam and then several pretty bad ones. Uh, today, I'm going to do my best to give you a bunt, <laughs> all right? And hopefully, it'll be uh, a blessing to you. Uh, Mark uh, chapter 9. Um, beloved, if you, if you really lean in with Jesus and you commit yourself to the life of faith and begin to deeply pursue the Lord and exude that kind of life, then uh, rest assured that your life is going to be a roller coaster. It's going to be full of highs and lows, ups and downs, twists and turns, joys and heartaches, ease and agony. The normal Christian life is wild and unpredictable and unfortunately not at all the way Christians tend to talk about it. We, we paint it with very flowery pictures. And there are days where the flowers are out, they have bloomed, the sun is shining, and everything's great. And the next day may feel absolutely horrible. Why is that? Why is it that our experience of Christianity is teeming with both inexpressible joy and dark, dark discouragement? Well, there's at least three reasons, and I'm going to focus on one today, but I just want to mention the three so we have the categories in our minds. Number, number one, we live in a fallen world. Coming to know Jesus does not remove you from the ordinary, normal sufferings that everyone experiences. God makes no promises about that. We will have car accidents and stomach flus and get fired from jobs and fail classes just like everybody else. Number two, we have a real, active involved enemy. Satan isn't a name. He's not the sun devil pitchfork. He's a, he's a real enemy who hates you. And we are from time to time attacked. Number three, the third reason, and the one I want to focus on this morning, of why this is a struggle for us is that we have wrong expectations. We have wrong expectations of God, of our, ourselves, of what He pledges to do and what we expect this life will be like. Maybe you've thought something like this or heard somebody say something like this. If uh, God is who we were created for, He's the reason anyone ever draws breath. And in Jesus Christ, 
we're reconciled back to God. That means we're connected to the reason for existence. Therefore, every day with Jesus should be sweeter than the day before. Have you heard that? If that's true, then shouldn't our experience of Christianity be just sort of bouncing along one spiritual mountaintop to the next? Every day better than the last. Boy, it sounds like that makes sense, and that's how this is supposed to work. But you know it doesn't. It's easy to think it's supposed to work like that. It's even easier to get in here and to pretend it is working like that. That is an ugly caricature of Christianity. It's a mirage. It's a lie. It doesn't actually work that way for anybody. To thrive with Jesus in this fallen world, we need a more biblical, realistic vision of what the Christian life looks like. We need an accurate, truthful set of expectations about what from today to the grave will actually be. Because if those things aren't being cultivated, then when the fallenness of the world, the attacks of Satan, and our own confused expectations collide, then our faith may become incredibly frail. And we might even walk away from it. I pray today that as a result of the scriptures we'll be looking at, that we'll find a more durable delight, a, a rubber-made faith that's able and capable to be knocked around without getting broken. Because learning how to live real Christianity, uh, learning how to have a mixture of deep, deep, deep disappointment and total, inexpressible, incredible overwhelming joy back and forth for the rest of our lives is tough. It's very tough to reach that point that we expect that is what's normal. Now, the amazing thing about all this is this struggle to come to terms with what Christianity really is, is something God is fully aware of and something that even though a lot of it is created by our own wrong-headed expectations, it's still something he's loving and merciful and patient and tender and kind towards us in. He's not saying, you are such a moron. Didn't you understand life would still be hard? That is not God's reaction to us as we struggle to come to terms with this kind of life. There's grace from God to defeat our wrong expectations of God. There's grace from God to defeat our wrong expectations of God. Why am I so convinced of this? Well, the passage in the scriptures today is there precisely for this purpose. 
And we're going to have to do some hard work today to see it. And it may not be what you thought this story was about. But I hope today the Lord will meet us in it. The opening story in Mark 9 is, is the incredible account of what's often referred to as the transfiguration. It is, uh, no doubt, a, an, an otherworldly, uh, strange, maybe we could even say bizarre passage. But make no mistake, it gives us no ivory tower, academic, halls of the seminary, only theology. Now, this is real-life help for the discouragements we face in walking with God through wrong expectations. In fact, let me give you a preview of what I would want you to be convinced of at the end. If following God doesn't feel like it's working for you, then look to Jesus transfigured. If you feel disappointed with something God has or hasn't done, look to Jesus transfigured. If you're here this morning looking fine, but inside there's a lot of fear, worry, anxiety, uncertainty, stress, look to Jesus transfigured. If you're not sure the pain of following God is worth the gain you're experiencing following God, look to Jesus transfigured. As we work our way through these verses today, here's the big idea I want to try to show you. The person of Jesus and his plan as Messiah can only be grasped through the paradigm of suffering and glory. That is what this story is about. There's a lot there, so we'll just break it down in three parts. First, the person of Jesus. Second, the plan, his plan of Messiah, the plan God had before the world began, and then finally, the paradigm of suffering and glory. Look with me at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant and intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came down from the cloud, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they, were no, long, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Remember where we are in our journey in Mark. Last week, with Brian Arnold's help, we reached a, a pivotal turning point. And boy, wasn't he great. That's a joy to have that relationship as a church. If, if you were to take the gospel of Mark in your hands and fold it in half thematically, 
the seam would run right down the second half of Mark chapter 8. Specifically, the place where Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? Everything from Mark 1 through Mark 8 has been building to that moment. It's hard to tell this way working through a book, but if you just sat in one sitting and read through the whole book, you'd see it. Jesus had in Mark 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, half of 8, he's demonstrating that he's the Messiah. He's showing it in miracles, teachings, healings. And yet he hasn't pressed the disciples. Okay, what about you? Who do you say I am? And he finally does that. And the seam in the book is drawn. In the first half, the point of Mark is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Peter got it right. He said, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. But then immediately flowing down from in the, into the second half of the book, the, the picture changes dramatically. Jesus immediately starts saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to rise again. The path of the Messiah is not the path you're expecting. Up to that point in the book, Jesus had not said anything about that. And now it's going to be constantly on the lips of Jesus. So while the first half deals with Jesus as Messiah, the second half deals with his principal task as Messiah. If you know the gospel, that's no surprise. But put yourself in the shoes of those 12 disciples and every other person alive at the time who wanted a Messiah. They were not imagining a dying, suffering Messiah. And so Mark 8 ends with Jesus telling his disciples, yes, you got it right, gold star, I am the Messiah. But then Jesus starts saying, don't misunderstand though, Messiah is my job description, number one task, die. And Peter pulls him aside and says, no, 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 no Jesus, you got, you got the Messiah part right, but not the death part. And then Jesus has to rebuke him and tell all the disciples, you too are going to suffer. So they had that conversation, and six days have passed, and now they're at the base of a mountain. We've got six days where we don't know what took place. But I assume those disciples were incredibly confused, discouraged, maybe even bewildered. Very likely, you can just hear them talking to each other. We signed up for Messiah, but not dying Messiah. I'm good with warrior Jesus, victory Jesus, conqueror Jesus. I am not good with dying Jesus. We got to straighten that part out of Jesus. He's confused there. And so in God's great mercy, as the disciples struggled, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his closest three, and he went up on a mountain to minister to them in their discouragement. 
Mountains in uh, the Bible play a special role multiple times in prominent spiritual moments. I read one pastor this week that calls them the suburbs of heaven. And what happened in Mark 9 on the mountain that day actually recalls two previous incidents earlier in your Bible. For time's sake, we won't go back and read them, but let me just remind you of them. And if you've never read them, take notes and go back and look at it earlier. But two times in the Old Testament, people met with God on mountains that were of great consequence in the biblical story. First, Moses and three named people, bing, 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 went up on a mountain and met with God in Exodus 24. And in that chapter, God showed them his glory. He, he's there in veiled form. He talks to them. And the covenant relationship between God and his people is formalized. This is an epic moment in the history of God's plan of redemption. That took place on a mountain called Mount Sinai, Exodus 24. The second one is centuries and centuries and centuries later. A prophet named Elijah had defeated the, the prophets of Baal, and then he had a death threat on his life. He was discouraged. He ran. He was bewildered. His expectations of God seemed to have been off. And God took him to that same mountain, Mount Sinai, where he met with God. God showed him his glory. God was there in veiled form. God ministered to him. Israel had wandered far from God. They had not been faithful to the covenant. And that day, God told Elijah, I will preserve my commitment to my people. Another huge moment in the history of humanity. When Jesus walked up that mountain with Peter, James, and John, guess who showed up? Moses and Elijah. Now, I recognize how crazy that sounds, but God brought them back. They were there. Why were they there? Because we're being told something monumental is happening again. Something not unlike Moses with God on the mountain, Elijah with God on the mountain. Something not unlike, but, but something better. God is showing that he's about to do something cosmic. But it's not just a Moses on Mount Sinai repeat. This isn't the law being reinstituted, reconstituted. No, this is the Mosaic Covenant being fulfilled. Moses and Elijah's experiences, you see, were merely appetizers for the feast of what's offered in Jesus Christ. And so as they stood on the mountain that day, something glorious happened. Verse 2 says that Jesus was transfigured before them. The Greek word is metamorpho. It's the transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly. That is, 
the physical presence of Jesus, even his clothes, were supernaturally transformed in a brilliant display of grandeur and glory. His, his purity, his radiance, his splendor, his majesty broke through with a, just a visible crack that those three might see who he really is. Psalm 104 says, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourselves with light as with a garment. That God showed himself that day. Ordinarily, Jesus looked just like the other disciples. Two feet, two legs, two arms, one face. I mean, he's, he's a real, normal, ordinary, everyday, typical person. But, but then he would walk on water or say some words and a storm would stop. Or he'd take up somebody dead and bring them back to life. And the disciples are looking at him thinking, he looks like us, but he's not like us. But never before this moment had they seen with such clarity who it is that they're dealing with when they're dealing with Jesus. Jesus is eternal God. He's divinity wrapped in humanity. At the exact same time, he's 100% God and 100% man. And in the transfiguration, the glory of God shone and gave the disciples a clearer picture than they had ever had about who this Jesus actually is. Church, the disciples were confused and discouraged because of wrong expectations. Peter, James, and John were disheartened because they did not know who they were dealing with. They failed to grasp that Jesus is God in the flesh. Their vision of him was therefore too small, so their expectations of what he was going to accomplish were pathetic. They had a small Jesus. We are no different. We are prone to, honey, I shrunk the Jesus. Our main challenge living through the ups and downs of life is that our Jesus is too small. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the creator, the sustainer, the one who holds all things together, the one who is God himself, clothed with splendor and majesty. Moses was great, Elijah incredible, but Jesus, Jesus surpasses them all. As the kids would say today, Jesus is the goat. But Peter didn't get that. And so he panicked and said, Lord, this is awesome. Let's build some tents. He wrongly viewed Moses, Elijah, and Jesus as equals. And therefore, he wanted shelter for each of them that they might just stay and hang out. But then... A voice spoke from heaven. 
the glory of God in the cloud that had not appeared to his people for 600 years showed back up. And from that cloud billowed the Father. This is my son. Listen to him. Poof. Elijah and Moses were gone, but Jesus remained. Why? Because a new era had dawned. Jesus is the centerpiece of all things. For Jesus is God himself come to earth for his people to fix our deepest problem himself. Church, Jesus is all that we need. God is still saying every moment of every day, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. We don't need anything else. Whatever we think God should or shouldn't do, God has or hasn't promised, God is or is not like, look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. He is plenty. The covenant given to Moses in Exodus 24 and renewed with Elijah in 1 Kings 19 is surpassed by Jesus, the Lord of glory. And so what do we need to live in this broken, fallen, disappointing world? in which Christianity is not hard, it's not easy. There are some ways in which your life might be more simple and less painful if you didn't walk with God. Discipleship, growing up in Christ, is, is challenging. But Jesus is sufficient. Now that's Jesus' identity. The, the Messiah. The disciples got it. But what they didn't understand was his plan as Messiah. His, his means through which he would do his work. And that becomes obvious as they start coming down the mountain. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain... He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. It's the ninth time in Mark people are told, don't talk about this, but this is the last one. He charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? The disciples are gaining clarity. Every day, a little bit closer, a little bit closer, a little bit closer to understanding God's plan. But they're not there yet. So they're walking down the mountain, kicking sticks, talking, struggling. They were utterly convinced that Jesus is the Old Testament promised Messiah. Absolutely convinced. They were certain that this is the one through whom God would bring about the restoration of his kingdom and God's people would be in God's place. But their expectation was that the Messiah would immediately bring about a physical, earthly kingdom 
in which God would put his people in a physical land of Israel and all would be right forever. There's good reason why they expected that. So when Jesus told him that I'm the Christ and as Christ I'm going to die, they simply had absolutely no category for understanding how those things could relate. They only could compute glorious, victorious, overthrow Rome in the wicked world, military conquest Jesus. And so they're walking down that mountain trying to make sense of all of this, understanding what we just saw, that doesn't happen. God's God's bringing about end-time salvation. We are watching it underway right before us. And yet this dude's talking about dying. I don't understand. And what about Elijah? Now, why are they asking about Elijah? The Old Testament ends with a promise that God would one day send Elijah Here's the words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers. That's the end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. The disciples are trying to understand how does that fit in with what's going on, because I don't get it. If the great and awesome day of the Lord is here in Jesus Christ, if that's already underway, then why do the scribes, why, why, why do we keep telling us? No, Malachi 4 has to happen first. Elijah has to come. Jesus' plan to bring about salvation included the number one task they didn't expect, death and resurrection. But how does death and resurrection relate to the fact that salvation is, is here in Christ, that the kingdom is present that Elijah is supposed to restore. It's like if you've ever made the mistake of taking apart something because you think you know how to fix it, and then you got the parts laid out and can't figure out how do they go back together. Oh, my gosh, that's frustrating. The parts are out before. <laughs> the parts are out before them, and they simply don't see how do these things connect And so Jesus makes a surprising connection. Verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, you've done amazing this morning. Thank you. This is not an easy passage, nor am I pursuing it in an easy way. We are just about to the cherry on top of the Sunday. But we've got to get past one confusing piece, and then we can... Enjoy every bite, all right? Jesus affirmed their understanding 
of Malachi 4. He said, yes, the scribes are right. The, the Messiah would come after, would, would follow Elijah who would come to restore the hearts of the people. This Elijah figure had to come. His job was to prepare the way for Jesus, laying the foundation for the kingdom of God. But God did not mean in Malachi 4 that Elijah would be sort of reincarnated and come back himself. He meant that someone like Elijah would come. Someone you might say in the power of Elijah, in, with the voice of Elijah, with the spirit of Elijah. Someone like Elijah. And we know that person to be John the Baptist. Now, if you're curious how we know that, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus makes that very direct connection. He says, that promised Elijah is John the Baptist. The Elijah-like figure of Malachi 4 is the John the Baptist we've talked about several times this year in the book of Mark. So, in the first half of verse 12, Jesus is saying, you're on the right track. Elijah has to come. But check out the theological jiu-jitsu he pulls in the second half of verse 12. Look at it again. That's true. And, that and is the key word. How is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And, Jesus is saying, Peter, James, John, listen to all the scriptures, not just the ones about Elijah. The same Old Testament that promised restoration, that promised the Messiah would come, that promised salvation, that said Elijah would have to come, also promised I must suffer and be treated with contempt. Where? Just one, one place. Just, you, you just need one? Look at Isaiah 53. Couldn't be more clear. And then in verse 14, Jesus goes for the jugular. But I tell you that Elijah, and what he means is John the Baptist. But I tell you that John the Baptist has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, this point is, is absolutely brilliant, but it's subtle. And so, if it's not yet obvious, let me try to make it so. Jesus is saying, disciples, you're having a terrible time coming to understand that I'm the Messiah and that I must die for salvation to be accomplished. But this is what your Bible has always said. And just, just look at John the Baptist. Just look at John the Baptist. He came and preached repentance. He shared good news. He laid the foundation for the Messiah. And what happened to him? They chopped off his head. Beloved, if the forerunner to the Messiah experienced that kind of suffering at the very dawn of the Messianic age, as the kingdom of God had come, 
of course, the same thing is going to happen to the Messiah. And if it happened to the forerunner, and it happened to the Messiah, of course, you're going to suffer too. And yet Jesus' death would be far better than John's. Because Jesus would die a substitutionary death. He'd die a perfect sacrifice, able to absorb all the wrath of God for every sinner upon himself so that all of God's would know his favor forever. Spiritual life is born only by substitutionary death. Death must precede resurrection. Apparent victory comes only after defeat. Church, in the end, what the disciples needed most was not freedom from Rome, was not lower taxes, was not to be in charge of their own government, was not more freedoms, was not a loss of hardship. What they needed was peace with God. And since the wages of sin is death, and every single person who has ever lived has sinned, then the only way to peace with God and with each other is through the death of another. Jesus' victory is won, not by conquering Caesar on a battlefield, but by being slain for sinners on a bloody cross. The person of Jesus and his plan as Messiah can only be seen through the paradigm of suffering and then glory. It's the only possible way. Suffering in life, suffering in death, and then glory in resurrection. Transfigure Jesus is the key because on that mountain, not only do we see that Jesus is divine, his His frail humanity for a moment was was exposed in such a way that through it you could now see his glory. But the transfiguration also gives us a sneak peek. A sneak peek of a preview of the glorious purity of Christ shining in his resurrection. Future glory does not negate present suffering. It guarantees it. Now, what do we do with this? You've done amazing. Thank you. Let me land the plane. The Christian life is hard. Following God is costly because we live in a fallen world Because signing up for Jesus means greater attack, not lesser. And it's hard because we get discouraged when our expectations of God don't pan out. We naturally assume if I'm connected to God and God is good, and if I believe him and live a holy life, then things should get progressively easier and easier and easier. But that's not real Christianity. So how do we live this life? We look to Jesus transfigured. Are you discouraged? See him shining 
in his divinity. God, God left heaven and came to earth for you. Are you suffering? Allow the brilliant glow of his resurrection light to warm you. Because that same Jesus is coming again. Paul says your sufferings are momentary. That Jesus is coming back in such a way that we can be so convinced and sure that if we struggle and suffer every day until then, it's okay because he's coming back. Are you bored with God? Contemplate Jesus on that mountain displaying that he's the blazing center of all things. And recognize he's called you. He knows your name. He has good for you to be doing today. He's in you. John the Baptist suffered. Jesus suffered. Peter, James, and John suffered. Every other Christian who has ever lived suffered. The Christian life is shaped by the cross. And with the absolute certainty of the resurrection. Our discouragements in this hard life will decrease exponentially if we are surprised when there's easy days and we expect hard ones. And if in so doing, our eyes are fixed on transfigured Jesus. This life must be viewed through the paradigm of death and resurrection. How? Looking to Jesus. Listening to Jesus. Leaning on Jesus. Submitting every moment to Jesus. Reading the gospel so much that it becomes second nature to just think of Jesus throughout the day. Speaking truth to one another about Jesus. So much so that that becomes the natural thing over time to talk about. When we realize I've been on Snapchat for six hours then put Snapchat down. Pick up the word. Listen to Jesus. Because the Father is still saying, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. See Him transfigured. And you will have joy even in sorrow. Father, we ask you that in your tremendous mercy, you would please help us today to get what you have said in your word. To believe it, to feel it, to be changed by it. I pray that people here this morning who have trusted you in the past but have given up on you somewhere along the way, would turn back again. I pray that people who have felt like Christianity seems to work for everybody but me, 
would have incredible, cool breeze of grace blow in on their parched souls. I pray that you would reorder our minds in a substantial way that we might better understand what we are to expect in this life. And we thank you that you are our help and that you are merciful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.